I'd like to base this afternoon's uh, reflection upon a quote uh, attributed to Viktor Frankl. Some of you may know his work. He was a Holocaust survivor. And in this quote, he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I think it is helpful to remember that this this learning or this insight of his, you know, really grew out of this most torturous, you know, this most unbearable time in a concentration camp. And I reflected on this response and how it it so much echoes one of the earliest teachings of the Buddha. Um, when the Buddha taught over and over again that we can find a way to be in this world without being a hostage to the world of conditions and yet can also be fully responsive to the world of conditions and what the moment needs. And it is very clear to us that we can't choose not to engage with the world. We can only choose, in reality, how we engage with this life and this world that is part of us and that we are intrinsically part of. I think in this reflection, it's, it's an invitation for us to examine uh, what guides our responses what are the values we feel most deeply committed to? And in that moment between stimulus and response, there is a space. And I think of that space as being a crossroads, where we really have the power to choose what road or what pathway we will follow and whether the road we choose to follow holds our growth and our freedom or holds our imprisonment and sorrow and a turning away from freedom. It's clear to us that in every day, every hour, every moment brings endless stimuli. Our sense doors are flooded with sights, with sounds, with sensations, with tastes, with uh, thoughts, with moods. And if you look at it, much of this we actually really don't choose. Our lives are, are touched by small and by life-changing events. And in every moment we, we meet the lovely and the unlovely, that which gladdens our hearts and that which can seem to lead to fear and to despair. The reality is we are always touching the world and we are always being touched by the world. This is, this is our life, this sense of touching and being touched. I think at times we can feel overwhelmed by the world of stimuli. We find ourselves just getting lost in that sort of whirlwind of sights and thoughts and sensations at times we find ourselves, depending on our mood, 
uh, really pursuing the world of stimuli. You know, more sensations, more sights, more sounds, more, more thoughts, more tastes. At times we find ourselves, I think, wanting to hide and to disconnect from a world that can feel too loud at times and sometimes too much. But what we do see is we don't have a choice over most of these stimuli. You know, we don't choose the sounds that come to us or the sights. We don't choose, actually, many of the thoughts that come to us. Our choice lies only in our response. And here I want to draw on a a couple of pieces from a book called Rowing Without Oars. I don't know, some of you might be familiar with this book. It's written by a, 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 was written by a Swedish television journalist called Ulla Karla Lindquist in the last months of her life as she suffered from uh, Lou Gehrig's or motor neuron disease and was dying. And she had two young, children, two young sons. And during this process of her dying, her sons very much encouraged her to, to write this journal so that they would have something to remember her by. And the, in one piece she says, I'm going to die of ALS if nothing unpredictable happens. There are two roads I can take. One is to lie down, be bitter, and wait. The other is to make something worthwhile of this misfortune, to see it in a positive light, however banal that sounds. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me, but there is a bright present. Children live like this, only for the present, with nothing coming afterwards. Therefore, I laugh like a child, uncontrollably. I think, you know, we we hear this phrase, be present, so often it becomes almost cliché, doesn't it? And at times I think it does seem like a rather banal prescription in the midst of difficult times in our lives to live in the immediate present. And I think on one level it is. But on another level, the present is our crossroads. The present is where we find those spaces. The present is our crossroads where we determine how we will live, what values will guide us, what our responses will be. The present is where we're asked to discover and rediscover what what we're most deeply committed to and the qualities of heart that we most deeply wish to embody. It is in this second quote, one of her children comes to her as she's writing. It says, Gustav comes and stands beside my desk. Do you write all the time, Mummy? It takes such a long time, I reply. I only write with two fingers now. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. What? He says, you're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you, the future. Now it's me who's getting smaller. Mummy, 
Every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. And he carries on. You have hundreds of thousands of lives left, Mummy. Every second is a life, I echo. I think there are probably many moments where we feel that we really, there is no pause, that there is no space between stimulus and response. We find ourselves moving into a place of reactivity, sometimes so quickly, so unconsciously, don't we? You know, there's a niche in our back and we're scratching. You know, there's just a slightest glimmer of a sensation of coolness and we're reaching for the blanket, you know, the... The, 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 we hear the bell at mealtimes and you know, we find ourselves moving towards it without a moment's pause. The lovely or the difficult thought can appear and without any pause at all, we found ourselves kind of jumping, jumping into it and being lost. So much of our day we, we see is, is really governed by this movement towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. And it can all feel, you know, really so automatic. And it can all feel in many ways so so habitual. So in many ways lacking in choice and in freedom. We find ourselves walking down a road before we even realized we were at a crossroads. There's a wonderful quote from the Tibetan tradition. It says, used wisely, used well, this mind, this body, is our raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this mind, this body, ties us to suffering, to samsara. This mind, this body, does the bidding of the skillful and the unskillful, the liberating and the unliberating. I think the the very first step on a path of waking up is really to to cultivate this space and this pause between stimulus and response. In in a way, it's the very first step of, of mindfulness and of awareness. And that space can only ever be cultivated in the immediate present. And our capacity to to rest in that space and to know that space between stimulus and response, I think, brings the crossroad of every moment into visibility. We can see it. And the the greatest gift that people ever discover in mindfulness teaching in whatever context it it is in is that we actually really do have the power to choose what we attend to and how we attend and this is actually quite a liberation to know that in this moment I, I can choose to attend to the sensations in my hand, I can choose to attend to listening, that I can choose to attend, but I can also choose how I attend. Because that is when we can also choose to walk down pathways that actually lead to the end of sorrow and distress rather than pathways that create and recreate sorrow and distress. It's not always easy. There's a, a wonderful line in the, in the Dhammapadas where it says, you know, it really isn't difficult for us to live in ways 
that are harmful to ourselves and others. This is true, isn't it? It doesn't really take much effort to be aversive. It, it doesn't really take a lot of effort to, you know, to work up some greed or some reactivity or some jealousy or proliferation. You know, it, it really comes quite easily to us. You know, in many ways, it's a sort of well-practiced pathways, isn't it? So well-practiced that it, it, it's uh, those patterns are kind of almost automatically available to us. But it's far more challenging for us to live in ways that are beneficial to ourselves and to others. To discover, I think, that space between stimulus and responses is one of the reasons why we we slow down a little bit on retreat. Because it's not just about slowing down the body, it is about slowing down the movement of the patterns that can feel so so very immediate and so very reactive. And this is a training for our lives, not just not because there's some sort of innate value in slowness, um, but because we can it gives us the opportunity to move into a more intentional life rather than a reactive life where we can really begin to cultivate that space between stimulus and response so we can see the crossroads. I think it, it's no doubt evident to us that in the, in the times of greatest difficulty, um, the times of greatest stress or crisis in our lives, you know, these are the moments when we're most prone to lose sight of that space between stimulus and response whether it's difficulties in the world, whether it is difficulties in ourselves, whether it's difficulties in our relationships to our own body and mind, the moment that we're often faced with the unpleasant or the painful and the difficult, this is when the reactive patterns tend to kick in so so very quickly. And and we find ourselves moving into, into familiar places, don't we, of fear or blame or despair or judgment and anger. Yet I think these times when we, when we actually really encounter the difficult, these are the times that are the most crucial for us to find that space, knowing that when we can stand at the crossroads of that space between stimulus and response, there is a choice other than becoming part of the affliction we may be facing. The Dalai Lama uh, once had a meeting with a very old and and very um, frail monk who'd been uh, imprisoned for many, many years and isolated and and abused. And the Dalai Lama asked this old monk, he says, really, what was the time you felt you were in the greatest danger? And this old monk answered, and he said, "The, the times of the greatest danger for me, when I was when I felt most in danger of losing my sense of compassion for my jailers. The Buddha proposed, you know, I often think of the, the Buddha as a kind of map maker. He, he sort of made a lot of maps of consciousness. And of course, the great value of maps is that we can actually find our way through confusing or unfamiliar or inaccessible terrain. Uh, 
And the Buddha proposed this very simple formula, or one of these maps, to understand the pathways that really open up to us, or the crossroads, that, uh, the pathways that open up to us as we stand at the crossroads, as we stand in that space between stimulus and response. He says, what we contact, we feel. Now, most of you would know this word contact really means simply the meeting of the sense door with the sensory information. The, the eye meets the, the sight. Um, the ear meets the sound. That what we contact, we feel. You know, as, as, and we respond to as, as human beings. We're, we're deeply touched when, by both the lovely and un, the unlovely. But when there is no mindfulness present, a reactive process gets set in motion that happens often so quickly that we only have a retrospective awareness of it. Or sometimes it just leaves us feeling quite breathless. So he says, what we contact, we feel. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we dwell upon. And what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind and the shape of our world. If we are sufficiently present in that moment of contact and feeling, in that space between stimulus and response, we're still going to be touched deeply by both the lovely and the unlovely. But there's a different process that can happen, and it might look like this that what we contact, we feel. This will still be happening. What we feel, we perceive. Perception will still be happening. What we, but what we perceive, instead of dwelling upon, what we perceive, we can reflect upon. And what we can reflect upon, we can appropriately respond to. So that we, what we contact, we feel. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we can reflect upon. What we can reflect upon, we can appropriately respond to. The sense of knowing, the sense of knowing, rather than immediately moving into the, the identification, the dwelling, the proliferation, the shaping of the mind in line with that proliferation, of thinking, what we contact, we feel, we feel, we perceive, what we perceive, we can reflect upon. I think in this space between stimulus and response, this is not only where our freedom or our lack of freedom is found, it's really where the shape of our mind and the shape of our world is determined. And this, quite frankly, is the mind we live in, and it's the world that we live in. If we begin to approach this space between stimulus and response, I think that then we can begin to explore how we might, we, we need to explore how we might intentionally, more intentionally cultivate that pause. Knowing that without it, we're hostage not only to the world of conditions, but we often find us, ourselves hostage to the world of our own reactivity, blown about by our reactions, overwhelmed and lost. And that's a world that really very rarely serves us well. 
nor does it serve the world around us well. I think intentionally cultivating this space between stimulus and response really begins with a, a genuine curiosity and mindfulness about what is happening at the sense doors. Now, in, in traditional teaching, the, the sense doors are portrayed as being the five open windows and the sixth sense door as the door of a house. The five windows, the eyes see, the ears hear, the tongue tastes, the nose scents, and the body feels, and the door is the sense door of the mind. And through these open windows and doors, we're very much touched by the world around us and by the world within us. Sense impressions flow in and they register. And through the windows and the doors of the house and the door of the house flows out the world of our responses, our reactions that imprint the world around us. So we can pretty much guess where mindfulness sits. On the window ledge, you know, on the door sill. This is actually where we seat our capacity for awareness, our capacity for mindfulness. The, the, the Buddha in the teachings really gives an ongoing encouragement to guard the sense doors, to practice restraint at the sense doors. Now, this was not an encouragement to a, to a sort of closing down or a desensitization or a, a numbing out or a defensiveness. But it really is an encouragement to actually begin to cultivate that space between the imprinting of stimuli and our response to it. Because this is where there is the power and where there is the choice. This is an ongoing encouragement. Protecting the sensors is, is an, an ongoing encouragement really to protect the well-being of our hearts the well-being of our minds, the well-being of our world. You know, mindfulness, sati, this translated as mindfulness, very much holds one of, one of it, its images or one of its ways that it's presented is this kind of protective awareness, which is very different than defensive awareness. And the image that is often used is, is the gatekeeper who stands at the door of a city, you know, very warmly welcoming in all of those visitors to the city who mean to, to benefit the, the city and its inhabitants and very politely turning away those visitors to the city who mean to and somehow endanger or harm the well-being of the city and it, its inhabitants. Learning to protect the sense doors is, is not to create a world of dissociation, but to create, cultivate that, spa, that pause that enables us to engage in wise and skillful and appropriate response that benefits ourselves, that benefits the moment, that benefits the world around us, allows us to engage in, in wise and compassionate action now that, the gatekeeper, mindfulness as a gatekeeper, is really rooted in discernment, which is, is very different than judgment. This is not about 
right and wrong, it's or good or bad, and I think it, it's really so so underestimated that the valuable place <laughs> and the the necessary place that discernment plays in developing insight and developing appropriate response. You know, this practice is so much more, mindfulness is so much more than just looking at things. You know, we could look at things for a very, very long time without anything necessarily substantially changing. Mindfulness is much more than just about watching or observing. It is bringing in this discerning quality in that which is received at the sense doors and that which is going on in our own hearts and minds. And there's very simple questions that are asked in this discernment. You know, Does this lead to distress? Does it lead to the end of dis- distress? Does this lead to my own affliction? Does this lead to the affliction of others or the affliction of both? Does this obstruct wisdom or does it support wisdom? Does this lead towards freedom? Or does it lead away from freedom? This is a territory that discernment is truly engaged with. Um, When we hear about the the image of the gatekeeper protecting the sense doors, we're we're really sensitive that it's not just about protecting the well-being of our own hearts and minds from these surges, not only of stimuli, but of, of reactions, being the gatekeeper is also a way of protecting the world from the surges of our reactions and our sometimes unhelpful responses. Um, when we slow down, I think, on retreat, we, we get a sort of microcosmic view of how this is operating in the rest of our life, you know, how much of our we live not so much in responsiveness rooted in discernment, but in reactivity of being for or against, of, of moving towards or, or moving away from. You know, it's just, it's the little things, you know. We're not talking about earth-shattering events here, you know. We just, you know, we just think about how, how much, you know, the, the, the pleasant scent in the hallway, you know, stimulates a sort of loitering around the, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the lunch line, you know, or we, we notice how, you know, someone moving slowly in front of us can immediately trigger that sense of impatience, you know, or, you know, how we're, you know, uncomfortable in the sitting and how quickly we move into, into activity to solve that discomfort, you know. I, I mean, I'm sure none of you are doing any of that stuff, but... But we become aware of how much of our life is actually engaged in that pendulum swing of reactivity, of maximizing the pleasant and minimizing the unpleasant, which, of course, on one level is so totally human. You know, we we want to feel good and we don't want to feel bad. But that which is sort of totally human becomes rather compulsive, doesn't it? The the unpleasant is seen to be so somehow threatening to me. And the pleasant is seen to be so affirming of ourself. If we are to have power, then I, I think we also have to have choices. We have, have to, if we're to have freedom, we need to reclaim that space between stimulus and response. Because when there is that space, no matter how small, between stimulus and response, we can care. 
we can care not only for the stimuli, we can also care for how our, our own minds and our own bodies are moving in response to that stimuli. We can care also for the surges of reactivity or the patterns that are triggered. We can feel, we can know and feel the, the fear and the anger and the unwill, ill will and the, and the wanting. And we know we can feed all of this or we can learn about some fasting of it all. We can learn to bring discernment. We know that we can kind of move with that flow of reactivity, or we can also have that pause amidst the reactivity and say, ah, what does this need? What would be of benefit here? What would lead to the end of affliction for myself and for others? Sometimes I think that this is not that space between stimulus and response is not always a comfortable space to rest in. Sometimes it feels, you know, quite quite fraught or quite tense or quite uncomfortable when we feel this push and pull of reactivity. And sometimes, you know, all we have to really commit ourselves to is just feeling our feet touching the ground. Or committing to being with just one single breath wholeheartedly. Then we know that single intention allows us that choice of not engaging in that which leads to our affliction or to the affliction of others. It allows us not only to be freed from the grip of destructive reactivity, but we're also freed to care. We're free to attend. We're free to participate in the moment in a radically different way. You know, I, I think we we do, you know, and we're all aware acutely of how, you know, this world lives just now in such difficult times. And perhaps anybody of any generation would have said the same, you know, that we live in difficult times. But I think we also know that our world does not need more anger or more greed, or more self-cherishing. We know this in our bones. And we know that we can't make the world, or we can't make the minds of other people to be different than they are, as, or as we wish them to be. And in the, those moments of facing difficulty, sometimes the choices we make are choices of powerlessness rather than power. Feeling that we're unable to participate in a process of changing and transforming the world within and the world without. You know, and when we're faced with the difficulty, it's not as if we never feel, you know, disturbed or never feel upset or never feel angry. I think not to do so would probably be to be strangely dissociated. But we can choose and notice what path we are feeding. And knowing that whatever we feed is surely going to grow. You know? The Buddha so much used this, this metaphor of a fire, you know, and saying if, if you really want a fire to keep on burning, just keep throwing logs on it. You know? If you want a fire to cool down, just stop throwing logs on it. 
And sometimes we, we're really called to examine what, what are the logs we are actually throwing on the fires that seem to burn within us, you know. And a lot of it is to do with, with how much we dwell and how much we think about it, the, the logs of our thoughts, so much the rumination, the obsession, the dwelling, so much keeps that which is difficult really stuck in place. But we can also feed other pathways, can't we? <clears throat> our capacities for kindness, our capacities for care, our capacities for compassion, our capacities for wakefulness, for sensitivity, our capacities for courage. I often reflect on, on a teaching many of you are familiar with. You know, it's often referred to as the, the bodhisattva vow or the commitment of compassion. And it says, though the many beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Though greed, hatred, and ignorance rise endlessly, I vow to end them. Though this path is vast and fathomless, I vow to understand it. Though liberation is beyond attainment, I vow to embody it fully. I think these are commitments that I think really teach us how to navigate through a life and a mind, a world of events that can feel so laced with confusion and with conflict and with ill will. And then we remember the immediacy of the present moment because it is only then, that is the only moment, we can actually really cultivate those intentions and those commitments. And I think in, in this cultivation, we, re, we really know that there's a difference between what we commit ourselves to and what we feel. You know, if, if we said to all of you here, you know, only sit if you really, really feel like it, you know, or only do a walking meditation if you really, really feel like it, or, you know, only show up for your work period if you really feel like it, you know, and if you, you know, only get up in the morning if you really feel like it, you know, and, and you know, if we did that, you know, we'd probably have a lot of empty spaces. And if we consider it in our lives how much commitment overrides what we feel in the moment, isn't it? Any of you who've, who've ever raised a child know that you don't get up smiling and chuckling at three o'clock in the morning to take care of a crying baby. It's the last thing you feel like doing. But you do it because you're committed to that well-being. You know, if you're taking care of someone that you love, you don't do it just when you feel like it. You know, you actually make that commitment. And I think we, we actually do that the same in this pathway, doesn't it? Don't we? It's not about what we feel in any given moment. It's about way, what we value. You know, it may feel like bringing greed and hatred and ignorance to an end is impossible, but we act as if it is. It may feel that liberation is beyond us, and yet we commit ourselves to liberating the moment. It may feel that the path is too difficult, yet every moment we commit to stillness and to listening and to responsiveness, we're walking the pathway of the moment. And I think so often of how that those many small moments of, of, of embodying that commitment rather than embodying what we feel, these are the moments when we're actually really learning to step out of this, the, the governance 
of this field of reactivity and into a more intentional life that truly is shaping our mind and it's shaping our world of experience and it's shaping how we see the world. To end with just a, a, a quote from a teacher that I uh, feel inspired by often, Patrul Rinpoche, where he says, do not take lightly these small small misdeeds or these small moments of reactivity, believing they can do no harm. Even a tiny spark of fire can set alight a mountain. Do not take lightly these small moments of commitment, of intentionality, of care, believing that they can hardly make a difference. For drops of water, one by one, in time can make an ocean. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.